Welcome to Your Financial Advocate with Greg DuPont from DuPont Wealth Solutions. As a practicing advisor and attorney, Greg teaches pre-retirees how to reduce debt and taxes and save with less risk so they have more spendable income and plan their way to a better life. Join us for this journey where Greg draws on years of experience and guest experts to help listeners achieve more spendable income for retirement. Hello and welcome to Your Financial Advocate with Greg DuPont of DuPont Wealth Solutions. Greg, what's going on today? You know, Eric, today is going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, we are we have a special guest today talking about something that is near and dear to many of my clients' hearts uh, and maybe even yours as well. So uh, yeah, I've never asked you this question before, but uh, do you have any uh, guns? Are you a gun collector or anything like that? Is this being recorded? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I do have a few guns, and uh, I've got family members who have been military. My, my father-in-law was Border Patrol for many years, and he actually gave his daughter, my wife, his service, uh, Colt Python, years ago. It's a beautiful gun. So, you know, you're not alone, right? I've, I've found over the years in my uh, with my clients, <laughs> you've got my dog barking right there. Yeah, so. yeah. You know, he likes she, guns, she's, too. That's fine. She, she's, she's given a shout-out to... Okay, I think I think the Bichon Frise has probably walked by the house by now. <laughs> All right, she seems to have quieted down. All right, so yeah, you know, Eric. Many times I've found with my clients that uh, as part of their savings and accumulation, and otherwise just hobbies, that they've attracted and purchased a lot of uh, investable guns and those type of things. Mm. And they don't really know all of the ins and outs of it. So today I brought on a guest that does, in fact, know, I think, just about every in and out there may be with regard to gun ownership, management of guns, and gun trust. And uh, I'm glad to be able to sit down here today and have a little bit of a conversation with uh, my friend, Derek DeBras. Hello, Derek. Hey, what's going on, Greg? <laughs> just uh, getting ready to kick back and maybe have a cocktail with you and... Uh, Talk about uh, all things guns today. Are, are, are you? Do you think that you're capable of having that conversation, Derek? Um, I definitely would be if I had some bourbon in my hand, but I don't have a cocktail, unfortunately. Uh, see, if I if uh, if if you were actually with me, not uh, virtually like this, you would have your bourbon, and I would have my trademark sapphire martini, extra dry. Uh, what bourbons do you like? Uh, well, based on that, I already know what kind of gun you carry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a very small gun, I would say. <laughs> um, I like all kinds of bourbon. You know, I don't like um, Tennessee whiskey. I'm not a fan of Jack Daniels. I mean, my go-to, it's nothing fancy, but, you know, everybody's got a go-to go liquor, just something that's always safe if you go to a place that doesn't have a good selection. That's Woodford Reserve. I really like yeah. Woodford. And I like Knob, some of the higher-end Knob Creeks are really good as well. Good stuff, yeah. Uh, and um, I won't answer the question about what kind of gun I have. But, Derek, you know, I, I know your background. I, I know how much uh, you are involved with the gun ownership, uh, lifestyle, and gun trust, and all this stuff. But if you would, could you just take a minute and uh, toot your own horn for me and let, let our listeners know a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So, you, you know, your listeners can look me up on my website, munitionsgroup.com. I'm a lawyer for 13 years. Um, I'm a combat veteran from the war Iraq War. I'm an Ohio State University alumni for my undergraduate and regent law for my law school, which is based out of Virginia Beach, which actually is going to be close to where I think you're visiting next week. So down there in the North Carolina area. 
Yeah. But anyhow, um, been doing guns since day one. I got licensed in 2008. Lehman Brothers collapsed. The economy was terrible. There was no jobs. So I said, I'm going to use this degree for something I enjoy and um, not become an attorney that just hates his job and becomes an alcoholic or something like that. So <laughs> I wanted to do something I really enjoyed. And I realized that there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't any attorneys really at the time that focused just on guns. There was a couple big names whom who, who are friends of mine now out of D.C. and California, but no one in Ohio of any import. And quite honestly, it's an extremely small bar. I would guess there's probably between three and 500 attorneys nationwide that focus on guns. And most of them don't even do it full time like I do. But I started with Gun Trust. And um, I, you know, I have two different ballywicks in the law. One is probate and estates. And the other one is guns. And there's a lot of crossover in those. But yeah, that's just a little bit about me and where you guys can find me. So, uh, you know, I first came across uh, the whole concept of guns as collectibles uh, with a mentor of mine that was very much into gun ownership and was showing me some beautiful cult pieces and those type of things that uh, that he had acquired. And he started telling me about some of the, the values on these things. And I was astonished about the, the growth of that and how valuable some of these firearms can be. Can you uh, share anything on that? Yeah, guns are like any other collectible, antique cars, antiques in general, you know, gold coins, stamps. Um, there's a lot of history behind weaponry. You can actually track the history of invention and technology with the advancement in weaponry, you know, starting with the advent of gunpowder and going up into the muskets and then the automatics and et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of fascination behind it just from a collection standpoint. But <clears throat> there's another area when you mention gun trust that we should probably at least broach at this point. And that's what we call NFA firearms, National Firearms Act regulated firearms or just NFA or Title II of the Gun Control Act, and they're very different than uh, guns as most of your listeners probably think of guns. When you think of guns, you probably think of maybe an AR-15 at worst as far as, you know, how deadly it looks, and, you know, at, at most pleasant, you probably think of like a Ruger 10-22, you know, rifle that you got when you're 16 years old, and then a variety of handguns. But you can actually in this country own fully automatic machine guns. Um, you can, in fact, in this country, own suppressors, which is commonly referred to as silencers. I hate that term because it's not reality. And then also short barrel rifles and short barrel shotguns and explosives and things like that. But they're highly regulated. So I bring this up when you ask me about the value of guns because the value is exponentially more with NFA guns. Now, the reason why is fascinating if you have an, an economics interest I've always wanted to write a white paper on this because I think it's interesting. So 1934, the first gun control in our country is passed. Um, it's passed in large part because of the Al Capone days and the St. Valentine's Day massacre. If you remember that, it was the Al Capone gang versus the Bugs Moran gang. Al Capone was in Miami Beach, of course, at the time. But allegedly a bunch of his henchmen dressed up as officers in Chicago and gunned down a bunch of Bugs Moran's people. Well, there was a call to action after that, or at least the beginnings of the call to action. And then there was an attempted assassination on FDR's life. A lot of people don't know that. It was actually in Chicago. And I believe they ended up killing the mayor. I think it was, I can't remember his name, Sirhan Sirhan. Or, I can't remember. I'm terrible with history. But any, any, nonetheless, at the trial of the gentleman who tried to kill FDR, he actually was a, an avowed communist. And uh, they named death row after him. Because I think it was in Florida, or no, it wasn't Florida. I can't remember where they put him. They put him somewhere, and there wasn't enough space uh, in, in the jail, so they actually stuck him in the death chamber. And they said that's, hmm. that's what became known as death row. So the judge actually recited in, in his uh, sentencing 
order or entry or order on the record that, hey, you know, it's crazy that people can go around carrying these guns concealed. Congress needs to act. So there's all these calls to action. There's a lot going. And anytime you look at gun control, there's always something in society that propagates it. The 1968 Gun Control Act, the largest gun control act in our country's history, was necessitated or came after the assassination of JFK, RFK, and MLK, right? All these terrible things happen, and we want to pass gun control. Sandy Hook happened. What did Obama do? Once gun control. So it's always a knee-jerk thing. So this happened in 1934, and what the law attempted to do was not you know back then congress i think knew they couldn't make guns illegal so they taxed it so what what it is in fact is a tax on machine guns fully automatic it's a tax on suppressors commonly referred to as silencers short barrel rifles short barrel shotguns which we can define later if you like and then something in a catch-all category called aows which is any other weapon so your novelty guns your lighter guns pen guns wallet guns briefcase guns umbrella guns things of that nature certain explosives those things are all regulated. You can even buy a tank and buy the rounds for the tank. Each each round is taxed, right? It's $200, and that's important to remember. That was set in 1934. So with inflation, do you want to take a guess at what that would be today? $1934, bet- $200. $1,400. $1, $1, just under $4,000. So it's about like a, a month's salary for a well-off person in 1934. You know, you can just think about the demographic that would entail, right? It's it's going to be white. It's going to be male. It wasn't a very fair law, in my opinion. But nevertheless, it got passed. They've never adjusted for inflation. It's still $200 today. 1986 rolls around. You have the Gun Owners Protection Act. And then you have the Hughes Amendment during the deliberations of that act that they took an oral vote on. Charlie Rangel was Speaker of the House at the time, and he let it pass. And when you look, go on YouTube and listen to the Hughes Amendment debate and the vote, you start to think maybe that didn't pass. But Charlie Rangel had the final say, and it passed. And what the Hughes Amendment did to the National Firearms Act is it amended it. It said no more machine guns. You can't put any more machine guns on the registry. You can't make machine guns yourself. No more. And you have to have them registered before May of 1986 if you want to transfer them. What we tax, so we're clear, is the transfer of the gun. So every time one of these regulated guns gets transferred, it's taxed. Now, so 1986 comes along, they say no more guns. So if you want to transfer them and you want it to have value, you got to have it registered. So you know, we don't know how many people registered these because it's a tax law. It's completely confidential. We can make it an assumption that maybe it's around half a million machine guns. We really just don't know. So once those guns are registered, you can transfer them. If they're not registered, sorry, you're out of luck. So what we what we did in 1986, if you can see where I'm going with this, is we created a finite supply. Yeah, yeah. And then as, as the economy ticks away and gets better and better and better over the years, the dollar changes, the value of it changes, the ups and downs of the economy. So what a dollar could buy you in 1934 is very different from what it can buy you in 2021. So $200 today is not a lot of money, right? I mean, I go out to a steak dinner and I'll spend $200. It's just not a lot of money. So you have an increase now in demand because more people can afford the tax because it's never been adjusted for inflation. If they adjusted it for inflation, it was $4,000. How many people do you think would be buying these guns? Not a whole hell of a lot. But because of that increase in demand and limited supply, what happens to the price? Through the roof. I mean, when when I first started buying these things back in 10 years ago, I mean, you. I think you were looking at a machine gun, like a, the cheapest one you can get, like a Mac 9mm, right? I think it was going for around $3,500. you are looking at in excess of $9,000, $10,000 starting on these guns. And remember, these guns are used. They're old. They're pieces of junk. 
a lot of times they're stamped metal, you know, because you can't have new ones on the registry. And it's kind of genius when you think about it, if you're, if you're pro gun control or anti gun entirely, because ultimately these things will deteriorate. They're made of a physical property, right? So they will go away. It might take 500 years, but they will go away eventually. So that's just a background into what we're going to discuss on gun trust, which is an important base for your, your listeners to understand, but that's why they're so expensive. It's simple economics. Gotcha. Gotcha. So where, where do gun trusts come into play? How's that, what's that necessarily do? So when we, when we talk about gun trust, we have, you have to understand the history behind what gave rise to that market. Gun trust is a generic general term, at least in my office it is, which can take a, a different, um, form depending on what the client needs. But when most people refer to gun trust, what they're referring to is an NFA trust, right? You as a lawyer know that words are important. What they're really referring to is an NFA trust. And the reason that these came to be a thing, if you will, for lack of a better way of saying it, was because of the way the law is written. So when Congress uh, passed the NFA and the CFR came out as to how and to interpret and enforce the law, the law needed to define, I always get these two confused, so forgive me. It's either person or individual. I can't remember which. Individual human beings, if you want to register one of these guns in your name, historically had to jump through some additional hoops that a trust didn't have to. You had to get a background check, and you had to get what's called a CLEO certification, Chief Law Enforcement Officer, CLEO. The problem was in 1934, that made a lot of sense because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have background check systems. Hell, I don't even know if the FBI was around back then. You know, it just there wasn't the ability to say, well, this is a bad actor. He shouldn't have this gun. So the sheriff generally knew who the bad actors was because we had a much smaller society and it was less uh, transient. People didn't move as much. So you got to know each other a lot more. So the sheriff had power to say, no, I'm not going to sign off on that. Well, unfortunately, as technology increased and guns became more of a political battering ram, Democratic sheriffs just generally wouldn't sign off on this because it didn't get them votes with Democratic people. Republican sheriffs would. I mean, you know, I'm generalizing, of course. So, you know, some attorneys, I can't remember exactly when it came to Advent, probably around 2008, if I remember correctly. There's a specific attorney out of Florida, David Goldman, who was the first one to really market this. And I'm betting he made a ton of money doing it because for years he's the only one in the country that really did this. And um, he found in the regulations in the law that trusts weren't defined under the regulations in such a way that it was the same as a human person. So trust didn't need the Clio. So what really gave rise to the NFA trust was you could avoid the need to get the sheriff to sign off and you didn't do a background check. Right. So you avoided all that. And theoretically, it was a faster process to getting the application approved because they didn't need to wait on all that stuff at the NFA division in West Virginia of the ATF. So that's what gave rise to the NFA trust. Now, that's changed over time. Obama actually changed some of those regs. Trusts now do, in fact, need to get fingerprinted. All the trustees do. Um, But you no longer have to get sheriff certification across the board, even if you're just an individual human being. You just have to send them notification. So it was a trade-off with the Obama administration. It's worked out fairly well. I don't have any qualms about it. The fingerprints don't really bother me too much. So, But that's kind of what gave rise to the NFA trust. So, so who needs to have that type of a trust? 
Yeah, so a lot of people, back when I first started doing these 13 years ago, I was the only one in Ohio that was really marketing it. I was making a lot of money every month doing these. I was getting 10 to 20 trusts a month. You know, you're charging you know, $1,000 a trust, let's say. It's a lot of money, right? But I saw the writing on the wall. I knew this was going to change, and we've had a pivot. So, so most people think, well, I can just put the suppressor in my name. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal to you, but it will be a big deal to your family when you die. Because it's extremely complicated to transfer these things through probate court and to do it correctly, right? And there's risk. If you're caught with one of these guns and it's not registered to you, it's 10 years in prison. It's a big deal. Attorneys just generally don't know how to do it, or they don't know that what they're holding is not just a basic AR-15. It's actually an M-16. They transferred it on the open market, just committed a federal crime. So if you don't know anything about guns, you don't know what you have, you don't know what you don't know, you're making mistakes. So ultimately... Um, the trust, the primary reason I encourage, there's two big ones. The primary reason is it deals with death. And it can deal with it in an efficient way where you're not involving the courts. Because when you're dealing with that, you're dealing not only with the courts, regulations, laws, rules, timelines, and dockets. You also got to deal with the ATF. And they don't give two, part of my language, they don't give two shits about what the yeah. probate court's doing, Right. You have to play, as the attorney, play middleman. And as you know, that's billable hours. It's very expensive to do that. So if you do it through a trust, you don't need that. Additionally, when you registered the gun with the ATF in your individual name, you're the only one that can possess the gun. Possession, as you know, is dominion and control. So if I have other people living with me, if I want my friends to be able to use it or my loved ones, you do a trust. Well, how does a trust own property? Through its trustees. So you can have multiple users, if you will, of the item if it's registered to a trust. And you can also register these so you know to a company. So you can use an LLC in the same way. Interesting. And it's my, my very vague understanding of this prior to our conversation today also had some element of danger of taking those firearms Cross state lines to, for you know, giving distributing it to another beneficiary that lives in Kentucky as opposed to uh, it staying in Ohio. Something about mm-hmm. crossing state lines was a real problem with that. Is, am I on the right track with something like that? There, there is. A, so anytime you involve interstate commerce and firearms, the government can regulate it. That's how they regulate firearms through the interstate commerce clause, right? So mm-hmm. um, with regular guns, you know, you can't sell a gun to somebody from another state. The federal government generally prohibits that. Just like your private transactions. You can't drive it from Kentucky and I can't sell you a handgun. It's not allowed. But if I die and my son who's inheriting my collection is in Kentucky, there's an exemption to that law. I can, in fact, just deliver these to the beneficiary across state lines. Not sure if NFA guns are different, but there is, I can speak to while you're alive, you cannot cross state lines with an NFA registered weapon, right? Unless you get permission from the ATF prior to. You fill out a think it's a call to form 20. They, you submit it to them. They can give you up to a full year of permission to and from one location at a time. So if you live in like Cincinnati and you have land in Kentucky, every year you'll fill out this form so you can drive to your farm in Kentucky with this item, right? And you mm-hmm. can go across state lines. Now, suppressors, they don't require that. Not anymore as of 2011. So, and if you had that in the gun <laughs> trust, then there would be no issue going across straight lines. You no, the, the trust doesn't, it doesn't help with that. The trust really doesn't do it. Now, what the trust can do is you, a trust can have multiple locations, right? You can have a trustee in Kentucky and one in Ohio. 
well, then, you know, we can buy one gun registered in Kentucky, buy another gun registered to Ohio. That doesn't mean that I can just cross state lines without permission, though. I still need permission to cross state lines because it's registered at a specific address. Interesting. So, so let's let's um, look at it from the other perspective. Who who maybe has some firearms, shotgun, rifles, what have you, handguns? You know, when when does that person not need to think about having a gun trust? When that, so that's a that's a negative question, right? So when did when do they yeah. not need to think about? It? So yeah. when do they not need a trust? Is what you're asking me? Yeah. So who do you say now? Nah, you don't need a trust for that. Yeah, so it, it's funny. When I have clients come into my office, I'll say, well, you know, um, they might be interested in a gun trust. I'll always ask, well, how many guns do you own? And sometimes it's kind of funny when they'll say, oh, that's a pretty big collection, or the wife is there, and they'll say, oh, it's a pretty big collection. I say, well, you're not going to surprise me. Trust me. I have clients that have million-dollar gun collections, millions of dollars in guns. Just tell me. And they're like, oh, he's got seven guns, and I just I laugh. I'm not going to tell you how many guns I have. But I'll tell you, I have more than one gun safe. Okay, so it's it's it, it's a, it, most times they're very small collections. But we, I look at guns, and very quickly when I do my my consultations, you know, this is not me researching anything, but I can generally gauge what the collection is worth. If you tell me you have ten guns, it's going to be worth about five grand. Every gun, depending on, of course, its providence and its you know what kind of gun it is, is worth at least five hundred bucks, give or take. Right? It's going to fluctuate. Some will be worth two hundred. Others will be worth three grand. But if I'm just trying to put a quick number on something, I just put a $500 value on all the guns. So if you tell me you have 10 guns, it's five grand. Not a significant asset from a state planning standpoint, as long as they're not NFA regulated guns. This gets into a different type of gun trust called a collector's trust. When we just put your regular guns into a revocable living trust to protect the integrity of the collection. But I normally tell clients, and this is not a hard and fast rule, and Greg, you could come up with a different reason and to choose a different number, I say about 30 guns is where you start to get into the realm of a significant investment more than just a hobby. And you really need to start planning that because can you truly get a readily ascertainable value on a gun collection of 30 guns? I mean, especially if you have like sequential serial numbers or unique items or, you know, 1970s Colt Pythons that are higher in value. There's certain things in that collection that are probably need appraised. So it's yeah. better for you to put it into a trust, keep it out of probate. We do a schedule of assignments with it where you actually put the value next to it, and then it's just handled outside of probate that way. So what does that engagement look like with you? So if someone wants to hire me to do, it can take different forms. Um, the nice thing from a legal business standpoint, if you have any attorneys that listen or trying to build a practice, is this gets you an in. This got me doing estate planning for wealthy clients at a very young age. Right, because they'll come to you for the gun trust, and then it's the perfect opportunity to say, "Do you have a will?" Well, I don't have a will. Well, guess what? Today's your lucky day. It's buy one get one free. I'll give you the will half price if you do a gun trust with me, right? And then you do the will, and then you do the NFA trust, and then you find out they have non-NFA guns. We also sell a collector's trust. We charge two thousand dollars for the collectors. We charge a thousand for an NFA. If you do them together, you get the NFA for free, so you get two thousand for both. That's how we do it. Okay. So I was under the impression that the NFA trust would be a more difficult trust, but is that not the case? No, it's it, the problem. Well, there's two re I used to charge as much as 2000 for the NFA trust when I was the only attorney really doing it. And I had clients all over the state of Ohio hiring me. The problem was, is the market started ticking up and the attorney started realizing there's a market there. You started to see companies pumping out forms and people are going online, getting them for $99. So you have a competition issue. 
Um, gotcha. You know, I'm on the higher end of that price. I think most attorneys are charging five, six hundred bucks for it. And normally, all it is is a it's it's, it's a trust. Most attorneys are using a form drafted by some company. The problem with that is is if the attorney doesn't understand how the NFA system works, the trust is is the easiest part of the process. The harder part is making sure the client understands the transactional component of it, all the paperwork that goes with it, right? You have to fill all these documents to get it registered properly. That's where the value really comes into the lawyer. And that's why we charge more because we'll spend an hour and a half educating the client. Basically, the conversation you and I are having now, I give that conversation every time to the client. I give them the history of the NFA. I want them to understand what they're doing and what they're dealing with. And what the future looks like. And what the future looks like. The NFA has generally been unra- unchanged since 1934. Obama was the last change in 2016. I mean, all he did was require fingerprints of trustees and change the Clio part of it. But, you know, generally it remains unchanged. And it probably will remain unchanged. The Democrats, if you want to talk about the politics of guns, their platform has finally caught on that, hey, you know, we should use the NFA as a reason to register re- regular guns, right? Biden's talked about making AR-15s NFA guns, which mm-hmm. would be an enormous tax. There's a big issue right now with arm braces and whether or not you have to register guns with arm braces to the registry. And, you know, some people have 10, 20 of these arm braces. That's $200 a pop. Or they have to toss them in the trash, the takings issue. Yeah. So it's there's a lot of... A lot of issues when it comes to that stuff, but future looks a little uncertain in certain areas on the fringes, but anything NFA is generally on the fringe. And what I mean by that, it's nothing negative. It's not a negative connotation. I'm part of that group, but it's just people are really committed to the gun culture and are really, it's just part of their life, right? It's who they are is what they grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that I've recognized with uh, so many of the people I've come in contact with that have... Uh, this is a hobby. This is a passion. That it is. It's. It is the way that you were raised, and there are just some people that just can't understand that. Can't it's like a car. Around. It's like a car collector. I don't have any desire to collect cars. It's just not my thing. But like Jay Leno has, like, what does he have? Like 350 cars or something crazy, you right. know. So that's his passion. Mine might be something different, like firearms or yeah, I don't know, farm tractors or whatever it is. You know, as long as I'm not hurting anybody with it. This is America. You should be able to own it. Yeah. So, Eric, you've been kind of sitting there uh, relaxing with your Guinness as a fly on the wall. And as I like to always do with these conversations, bring the fly on the wall in to you know, just uh, see what uh, thoughts and questions were rolling through your head as you're listening to uh, Derek and, and my conversation. This is all completely new to me. I mean, I'd never heard of gun trusts specifically for the purpose of other people being able to touch them or possess them. <laughs> so this is, uh, yeah, it's very eye-opening to me. This is fantastic. Do you have any questions that rolled through your head that you want to ask the expert, Mr. DeBross? Yeah, as, actually, Derek, as you were talking, I'm very curious. I've got family in Texas. I, I currently reside in Nebraska. I'm from Washington State. All those states have very different gun laws you know, per state. There's always this question in the back of my mind, the regulations from state to state, could I have a, a, a firearm in my vehicle? How did that, would that work? How much trouble would I be in? And depending, you know, which state I'm traveling through at the time, the trust that you're talking about, did they vary by state? I mean, there's, yeah, I got a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> well, generally, well, yeah, generally just real quick, the answer is yes, they do vary state to state. Yeah. Yeah. 
Eric has a great question, and I'm glad to say that uh, Derek has agreed to join us for a second episode here, that we're going to go into some of those details uh, about how state law affects people and how uh, the complications that come along with gun ownership and trying to exercise some of your constitutional rights. So before we do head off, uh, Derek, in case somebody only listens to this one episode, could you also tell them uh, again how they might be able to get a hold of you if they want to talk to you about gun trusts? Yeah, the easiest way is through our website, munitionsgroup.com, munitionsgroup.com. We also have a YouTube channel, uh, Munitions Group. If you just go to YouTube, you can find us there. Or you can give us a ring at 614-326-1919. That's our Columbus line. Derek, thanks for joining us here today, and I look forward to our next conversation uh, with regard to some of the more particular details in Ohio as an example and maybe elsewhere. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Derek, again, thank you so much for being here and agreeing to do a part two to this show. And Greg, of course, thank you so much for bringing him on the show. And our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Your Financial Advocate with Greg DuPont. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Greg comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at DuPont Wall Solutions, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Your Financial Advocate. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of DuPont Wealth Solutions. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. 